0: you're welcome to come hang out Uh, we'll have some snacks but bring bring money if you want to chip in for pizza all righty go
1: folks
0: yes go to hebrews chapter four chapter four i Hebrews four is where we will be. All right. So last week, um, the author basically compared Jesus with. Moses and he basically said Moses is a great servant of the Lord Moses was like a servant in God's house but Jesus is um, Lord over God how God's house the owner of he, he he's actually the builder Mo, Moses would be just the house so he, he goes on to describe why would you why would you want to go back to Moses when when you could have why would you want to go go back to hang out with a servant when you could um, be with the owner the Lord the son of um, the house. So he, he goes to great lengths to describe this. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says this, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? He's referring to the Israelites um, that, that followed Moses out of Egypt into, um, into the desert. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, y- you want to turn back to the guy and that, the people that followed that guy. Some of those people, they... They didn't believe, and they fell away. They they actually died in the desert because of their disobedience. He says, and with whom was he provoked, he being God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not the Israelites? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So he's building off of this, this idea of, unbelief and disobedience this is where he's going this is going to be he's going to hit this hard in this chapter he's he's, he's paralleling their the Israelites unbelief and disobedience with the potential of his audience and their unbelief and disobedience so the question is um, what is his rest it's something that came up last chapter a little bit it's going to be something he talks quite a bit about what is his rest and how is it relevant to the audience of which he's talking to, the, the, the current, the Jews in which the author's um, writing to or speaking to? So here in chapter four, here's what he's going to do. First couple verses, he's gonna transition from the Israelites to, um, to, to these people and, and describing the rest that God has for them. And then thir- three through 11, he's going to describe this rest um, as, as being promised from beginning of creation, um, to Moses and Joshua, to David, to to them currently. And then at the end, he's going to give a strong warning um, to to trust God at what he says because of what God sees. And so um, that's where we're heading. So, Brianna, would you mind reading? (laughs) Yeah. Would, would you no, prefer would mind. you would you prefer Anthony read? No, okay. right. I want Brianna to read. Okay. No. You want Brianna to read? No. Not really, but you just saying that. To my I I appreciate that. Okay. Read Hebrews one and uh, sorry, Hebrews four verses one and two.
2: Therefore
0: So he starts with this word therefore now th- that word he he actually uses three times in our text today verse verse 1 verse 6 verse 11 so anytime there's a therefore there's a typically a conclusion to or or an action that's about to follow and that's he does both of those here with this therefore he says basically in conclusion to what i just said about those people here's the action that i want to give and the action is what what's the action in verse 3 what's the command in verse 1 fear let us fear he says now um, in, in, in light of those who are disobedient in, in light of those who did not enter God's rest because of their unbelief fear something what is it what is it he's wanting to fear he says give careful re- give careful and, and reverent reflection to the seriousness of being outside of the will of God what he's saying he's saying ultimately fear um failing to reach god's rest that's what he says failing to reach it okay so we don't exactly know what god's rest is yet we'll get to that but fear failing in to getting into it so there so there's something that he wants us to fear now that goes a little bit of against um our culture in fact i think aside a slight um Application. Typically, we don't do this in the first first section, but but typically we in our culture, what we try to do is we try to um, give you confidence by telling you not to fear anything. We try to put a lot of confidence. In you don't fear anything. And the author's here saying, no, fear something. Fear something. So what is it he's saying to fear? Uh, th- this is a common command. You would think that the Bible would be full of verses that say, don't fear anything, don't fear anything, don't fear anything. Well, there's actually several verses that say, no, here's what you should fear. So here's a few in the New Testament. Luke 12, 5, probably the strongest. These are Jesus' words, Luke 12, 5, okay? He says this, But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes. Yes, I tell you. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Are you reading my notes? No, no. Sorry. I just I was praising God. Yeah. <laughs> he says, yes I tell you, fear him. Fear him. That's Jesus' words about God. Here this is Philippians 212. Uh, one you've probably heard before. Work out your salvation with what? The Fear and trembling. <laughs> Romans eleven twenty says this, similar context actually. He says, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do, do not become proud, but fear, actually. So there, there is a healthy fear. There is a healthy reverence to understanding who God is. And, and specifically back to Hebrews, he's saying something interesting about fear he's saying specifically fear what in verse 2 he says what fear what yeah not entering his rest. how do we not enter his rest by not not believing not being faithful not um, not being obedient their their disobedience was proof of their unbelief that's that's what he's saying ultimately because they didn't obey it was proof that they didn't believe so he's saying fear that fear disbelief fear disobedience so so right off the bat that the, the author is coming strong at this like he's saying you, you, you should you should fear this he says um, and then he and then he kinda unifies both the Israelites in the past with his current audience by helping them see that they both, that several things. They both heard the good news. How's that, how's that possible? So we understand how the New Testament people would have heard good news. It would have been about Jesus. How how did the Old Testament people hear good news? What was the good news in the Old Testament? Ultimately, it was that God's promise. That 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 even even Abraham was a, was a credit faith um uh, he was accredited by righteousness because of his faith because he trusted God he was made righteous because he 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 trusted where God's going he trusted what God's promises and because he looked forward to in in, in faith and trust and acted in that in a in that way it acted in obedience to that belief he was it was credited to him as righteousness he didn't know about Jesus specifically coming he didn't know how that was going to end Jesus is the revealed truth of the gospel but the gospel started Long ago, long ago when the same God created a covenant, called people to trust him, and said, Follow me. And so they both heard the good news. Um, it was the same same good news, just in the New Testament, fully revealed in, through revealed to in, in Jesus. And the same God who promised and delivered both. So both heard the good news and both did not have faith. But both the old the old covenant people did not have faith and the potential of this group turning back to Moses it would be the same thing not entering God's rest so then he kind of goes into describing this over the next several verses so verses 3 through 11 are um, the promised rest for those who are faithful and it is both a present and a future reality okay that's what you need to know it is a present And a futurality. And so you're going to see him describe in in four periods of time um, how God's rest rest was available to um, his people. So, read 3 through
2: 5. 3 through 5. For we who are believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest and yet his works have been finished since the foundation of the world for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way and on the seventh day god rested from all his works again in that passage he says they will never enter my rest
0: okay so he starts by saying basically that we, that we know that those who who believe will enter his rest okay again we still don't know exactly what rest means yet and we may not actually come to a a a perfect conclusion of what he's describing Um, rest is used here as as a metaphor but also as something specific and so it's kind of it's a little bit of both Um, but he'll talk a little more as we go he quotes verse he goes Psalm 95 as again speaking to the rest that as a future thing for the Israelites God promised as they were coming out of Egypt That there was that they would enter his rest as they crossed into his promised land. We'll see exactly what he means by that later, that it wasn't fully that either. Um, Yet in the next line, uh, right after he quotes that, he says, points out that God has entered his rest since since creation. So these first few verses, 3 through 5, point back to the creation event, saying God created... The heavens and the earth and on the seventh day god rested and ultimately god hasn't stopped it's that that day is a never-ending day god is still in this period of rest so it is a present reality is what he's saying it was a present reality from from the beginning from the foundations of the world and then was verse 4 he points he points out that god is resting um, that god has rested on this 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 day the never ending day, verse 5, he, he says, Notice he says that they shall not enter my rest. It was available to them. Um, so, this rest for the Israelites was available to, available to them as they were in the desert, but it was also something promised to them as they trusted God in the future. So, it was a present reality and a, and a future reality as well. So, what he's saying is, we are ultimately, that, that is a present reality here as well. He'll, he'll get into that in a second too. Read 6 and 7.
2: Since it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, again he specifies a certain day today, speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts.
0: Okay. So now he jumps from creation to David's day. He's saying when David wrote these words, he wrote these words to specific people to encourage them in the same way. He's saying, don't, he's saying, if, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, because remember the Israelites, they, they hardened their hearts, they disbelieved, and, and they didn't enter God's rest. And he's saying, so David's audience is hearing the same thing. So it, God's rest was available to them as well. It was a future reality, because he's saying it wasn't just for the Israelites. It was also in the future for David's crowd too for david's people too um and he uses this word today again just so not only future but now today is this present reality he he keeps jumping back and forth describing it as future present future present um okay so read read verse 8 through 10 where he's going to jump back in time to talk a little bit more about joseph or moses and joshua's day 8 through 10.
2: for if joshua had given them rest he would not have spoken later about another day a sabbath rest remains therefore for god's people for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works just as god did from his
0: okay so god gave this promise um through through the psalmist um and, and so what he's saying is, Joshua, even when Joshua's people entered the promised land, they didn't enter into rest. They didn't come into the promised land and be like, oh, sweet. We got milk and honey. We can just sit around, fan ourselves. We don't have to do anything. It's just awesome. Like, just paradise. Has anybody read Joshua recently? It's a bloodbath. Like, he has to go in and take the land. Do you remember the 12 spies? What happened with that story? Do you remember that story? How many of them, of the 12 spies, how many of them said, no, 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 we can't do that? 10. And two said, yeah, we can. God told us we can. The 10 that said we can't, what was their reason? Remember?
2: They're
0: too tall. So they had experienced, remember, they had experienced God wiping out the firstborn after all these 10 plagues. Wiping out the, the Egyptian army, parting the Red Sea, not in that order. He goes, gives them the law, and then all of a sudden, tall people. God can't handle <laughs> tall people. They're just too much. Can't do it. Too tall. Um, so, so no, they, they go in and they have to fight for their land. They, they have to wipe out wicked people. That, that had been rejecting God for decades and centuries. And so, in order to have the land that God had promised them, it wasn't rest, it was work, and it was a fight. And so, that's what he's pointing to. So, this, this, this promised land was really more of a shadow of what was to come. It was a shadow of, of, of trusting in God's promises, so, so, so the people could have said oh we're supposed to get there and it's just going to be milk and honey and it's going to be amazing Well yeah there was that but it wasn't exactly what they expected because it wasn't the, the, the things hadn't been fully restored and even even now as well so he was describing it again as a as a present yet future reality as a now and not yet promise um, Then verse 9 he introduces this word Sabbath actually the word, in the greek is the first time it's it's a different version of the typical word sabbath used we think the author is taking sabbath and rest and kind of making up a new word because it's the very first time this particular greek word is used in greek literature that's it's the earliest we know that this word is used um so it's kind of interesting but he's he's taking these two ideas so this is interesting so i don't know what you know about the sabbath um other than we suck at it, okay, collectively. 99.9% of us do. So there's a .1 of you, somehow, which means is there are hundred people in here. One-tenth of one of you is good at it. Um, but 99.9% of the rest of you are not, that, that I know of. I don't know anybody, honestly, that practices this well. Um, it's just sad, myself included. But, so if you know much about the Sabbath, it, it's not just not working. In, in Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23, you can look, look these sections up later. It's pretty fascinating. The, the, the Sabbath was deeply connected to the atonement process. So God says, six days you work. In fact, I created you to work, created you to, to enjoy it. I want you to work. But on the seventh day, that day is my day. That day is my day. And here's what I want you to do with that day. I want you to, to not work because I want you to, to realize that it's not up to you. I want you to not work, and I want you to trust that I'm at work. And he says, "I want you to not work so that I can cleanse your sins." So it was, it was, a, it was a the seventh day was connected to God cleansing their sin. So it's kind of interesting that he would put these two ideas together. Um, and again, it's not explicit in the text, but we're going based off of their understanding, Jewish understanding of Sabbath, and how it was connected to. Um, the atonement so perhaps here's here's kind of what he's describing that the Sabbath um, that remains for God's people that's that's that that he's describing to them is is this is a new covenant a a new day of atonement kind of Sabbath in which they are cleansed from their sins. so he's saying that that people back there they look forward to what you have right now why would you go back they look forward to it it's it's a it was, a pre, it was a future reality for them. It's a present reality for you in Jesus. This new covenant where, where you are cleansed by having faith in Jesus. Why would you turn back? Then for verse 10, he goes on, going with this kind of idea. In the same way God finished his work and rested, those who enter this rest um, doesn't need to work. So what does he mean by that? Doesn't need to work. What, what don't, what don't they, does that mean they don't have to do any work? Is he describing works salvation? Um, we don't know exactly, um, but, but maybe our, our guess or my guess, and Drew can add to or sh- take away or disagree or stone me or whatever, um, <laughs> is uh, what I think he's describing is um, that ultimately, once belief is established, once, once faith is root taken root in somebody, um, then 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 work is complete. That they look forward to this rest where they enter because he's just remember he described those that believed in Israel in, in Moses' day, those that believed, they entered God's rest. And those that didn't did not. So it was a present reality for them. It's a present reality for his his audience here. And I think what he's saying is once you once you've taken uh, once you once faith has taken root and there's belief and, and you're trusting God and his promises then you have entered God's rest. And there's no need to, no need to um, worry about that. You, you, you stay in that. You live in that. You live in his rest. Now remember, his original purpose was to exhort them, was to come alongside, to, to, to give strong truth, to give them courage, um, and to warn them to stay away from disbelief and, and unfaithfulness and to turn to belief and faithfulness. That, that's his whole point in this and so we know that because verse 11 goes right into that he says well actually we haven't read it so read verse 11
2: let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience no.
0: okay what did your version say let us what what would you what did your version say
2: let us then make every effort make every effort to enter
0: Okay, make every effort. Um, ESV says strive. What's another version? Anybody else have a different...
2: NKJV says
0: be diligent. Be diligent. Okay. Of course, work hard. Um, Do your best. These are other, other kind of ideas. Isn't that interesting? So you're in God's rest. You don't have to work, but strive and fear. Like, This is the fuller picture of what this is. It's not... Oh, it's not, I said a prayer, and so I'm good. I don't have to worry about anything, I said a prayer. No, that's not the way this works. One, that prayer's not really in the Bible, specifically. But two, your faithfulness proves something took place. Your disbelief and unfaithfulness proves nothing took place, except you got really, really emotional on the fourth week of junior high church camp. That's all that means. That you, you got you had an emotional night. You saw people going forward. And you went forward, you said something and but if 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 belief and faithfulness haven't taken root in your heart to where there's action and to where there's obedience to God and his spirit, then then chances are nothing took place. And he's saying strive for that. Strive for what he has, um, strive to believe, strive to trust, and in fact, fear disbelief and unfaithfulness. And if, and if that's, I'm just going to say this: if that's an issue, if that's something that's on your heart, and you're going, hey, how do I know it? We, we want to talk through that with you. That's not something to be ashamed shameful about to where you don't say anything to him. That's something you you want to get straight because he's talking in very strong language, and he's going to get it even stronger here in a second. So read. Read verses 12 and 13.
2: For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as to divide soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It is a judge of the ideas and thoughts of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. Okay.
0: Like put those verses to memory, because those verses are crucial. Um, they're, they're, they're big verses in the Bible. Uh, someone has said verse 12 is, they call it a rhapsody on, on God's penetrating word. Like this rhapsody, this exhilarating, epic poem uh, describing God's word. So why does, he, why does he all of a sudden jump to, he's talking about rest, he's talking about disbelief. Why does he jump to the word? So, the word he's referring to is Psalm 95. Remember in the last chapter he says, The Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. So he's saying, that's God's Word. And God's Word is powerful. Amen? God's Word has, I mean, is monumental in in our life. In fact, this this section, um, I would say, Probably does a better job more than in, this verse, probably better than any other verse in Scripture that I know of. Does a better job of describing what God's Word is, how it works, and why we need it. Probably better than any other verse. It's my, my opinion. Uh, and Drew's going to get into it and describe it. So not only do we know, need to know what, what God's Word says, because it's very important we know what God's Word says, we also need to recognize this, that, that what, what God sees is just as important. What does he see? What does God see? The answer: Everything. Everything. So he says, he's saying to this group of people, if you think that you can pay God's word lip service and not pay attention to it, you, you don't understand, and you can't hide from um, God's. You don't you don't know the the extent of God's discernment, like what He can actually see going on in your life and in your heart and and in your mind. Is it, this is, he, he's, he's saying, listen, you, you think you can just, you can't just take God's word, and go, ah, yeah, I know it says that, but, no. He's saying, no, this is this is big, because God sees your heart. Um, the reason we wear clothes, is to hide our nakedness. Okay? We don't want to, no one wants to see your guys' nakedness. No one wants to see you walking around naked. That's why we wear clothes. Okay? This happening. So, Nakedness in, in, in this text is, is is the same as helpless, unprotected, complete vulnerability. That's not something you do with everybody. That's something you might, if you're lucky, do with one person your entire life. Hopefully, only one. But, but, but it is a complete vulnerability to God's judgments and His actions. So you've got, he says, everything is naked and vulnerable before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is strong language um, to these people. So the author is saying in summary that just in case you think you can try to keep keep God, this is what they were doing, wanting to keep God but give away Jesus. We've already determined you can't do that because they're the same. Um, Just in case you want to do that, remember that what God has said and what God sees is, is is crucial, and you can't fool him. And so he's saying, turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Follow him. Obey him. So, we're going to take a couple-minute break, and then we're going to get back into why is this word so powerful.
1: All right, guys. We're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, we'll do this at the end. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Scott has has walked us through this text that can really be. I I hope it was. Hope that was helpful. This is a, a text. Upon first reading, those of you guys who are in table groups maybe went through that going. What in the world? Um, it's, it's tough to follow and, and, and so Scott, uh, I hope you were following, was able to kind of break that down and, and some great stuff in there if you're able to pay attention and to hear. And he does finish um, with these pretty strong words in, in Hebrews 4:12, some of the most famous uh, words in the book of Hebrews. Uh, maybe, maybe next to Hebrews 11, this may be the most well-known verse. Um, in in the entire book, and and one that's known by a lot of us, but one that I, I'm not sure if we ever really spend a whole lot of time thinking through what it actually means. Um, let me read to you that verse real quick. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a famous verse, and as Scott said, this is a, an important and a powerful verse talking about the Word of God. But this is one of those verses that I think we know so much that we don't know very much. Um, and it's easy to kind of read through and, and it's it's easy to kind of spout off the Word of God is living and active without ever actually even pausing to think through. What does living and active mean even? How, how are words living and active. How can that be? What does he mean by that? And, and for some of us in here, that, that truthfully um, is an even bigger question mark because honestly, when you sit down with the Word of God, you may not know what living and active means, but you know that whatever your encounter is, it's not that. Like it's not, it's it, whatever living and active is, like my encounter with it is the opposite of that. It feels sometimes when you sit down to read it, perhaps dead or dry, um, lifeless if you will. What does the writer mean when he says that it's not those things? When he says living and active, what is he describing? Now, I, I want to try and get to that, but in order to answer that question, I think we need to, as always, look at the context. Okay, And so I want to look at the context to describe what he's getting at when he says it. So what we're going to do is we're going to step backwards into this text. We're going to go all the way back into last week's texts to help give us a description of, of what he means when he's saying living and active. The first word there of 12 is four, okay? For the word of God is living and active, implying that he's building on verse 11. Actually, in the Greek, this is kind of interesting. The very first word is living. Literally, it's, it's something like living for the word of God is and also active, okay? Um, because he wants to stress this idea that it is living. But, but the idea he's building it on verse 11 and some of the previous things before that. So let's look back at verse 11 and see what that says. Verse 11 is Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same or fall by the same sort of. Of disobedience and then he says for the Word of God is living and active so the Word of God has to do with we need it so that we may not fall back into the same sort of disobedience and again we don't just throw our own definition of disobedience in there we have to use the writer's definition of disobedience so what is he talking about in this context when he says disobedience if we want to get a good look at that we go back into chapter 3 verses 18 through 19 this is what he says And to who did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So those they disobeyed. Now here's his definition. See, so we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. That is the parallel idea to disobedience to him. Disobedience is unbelief is what he says here. That was their problem. Next question would be this. How does that happen in our lives? How is it that there was this group of people, okay, uh, pictures, there's a group of people who witnessed the ten plagues take place in Egypt, okay, who, who saw these incredible miraculous things, who got let out into the desert, who watched the Red Sea part. They, they walked through it themselves and and then they they had manna fall from the sky from the, the eBay experience they they followed a pillar of fire by night a pillar of cloud by, they saw all these incredible things and he says they did not believe unbelief was their problem how does that happen how does unbelief form in our hearts how do we go to that level of disobedience and the question I think the answer to that means we move back a few verses even before that chapter 3 verses 12 to 13 See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Unbelief happens. Unbelief is the result of hardness of heart. That was the main thing we were talking about last week, talking about avoiding having a hardened heart unbelief is a result of hardness of heart and hardness takes place when we are he says here deceived by sin our hearts are hardened by sins deceitfulness by the deceitfulness of sin think about that statement for a minute sins deceitfulness the deceitfulness of sin we tend to think of sin as simply something that I do I sin the problem is the action itself Lying is bad, and I lied, and so that was my sin. And when you ask somebody why they sinned, why they did a particular thing, it's difficult for them, I think, difficult for them to go much beyond surface-level answers in describing those things. Why did you cheat on that exam? Because I wanted to pass the test. Right? Why, Why are you greedy? Which is actually, that's a Really bad example because greedy people don't know they're greedy, okay? And so people aren't going to talk about this, but actually it's a really good example because greedy people don't know they're greedy, which is exactly what we're talking about. Why are you greedy? And if if someone were to, people aren't going to say I'm greedy, but why do you want so much? Why do you have to keep running after more things? Why do you need more things? I don't think a lot of people can give a solid answer. It's a very surface because I like stuff. Because it's cool to have stuff because, I mean, I work hard and doesn't that... like why, Who doesn't want stuff? Who doesn't want more money? There's not much reason they're able to give behind that. Why is it that you are even though you know you shouldn't be? Why are you sleeping with your boyfriend? Because we want to? Because we love each other? And I mean, I know it's not... Some people, that's as far as they go and that's as far as they care to do. Those, those who recognize it as sin, even though they recognize it as sin, can say things like, I mean, I know... I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to, but, but I mean, how do you expect us not to? Like, I, It's just we love each other, and that's kind of what you do. And I mean, I know, okay, so I know maybe that is sin there when I do that there, and maybe I need to kind of, I don't know, maybe I should think about that some more. But, but the Bible talks a lot deeper about sin than those kinds of things. For the Bible, the sin is not just the action itself. For the Bible, sin is always a greater issue. It's, a, it's an issue of love sin is an issue of worship sin is an issue of trust let me say that last one one more time for the bible sin is an issue of trust and an issue of belief that's what sin is it goes deeper into those things and when we sin what we've done is we've bought into a lie of some kind that's that's what the writer of hebrew says you were deceived by sin. The deceitfulness of sin is taken over. So when you sin, it's not just because, well, I wanted to pass that test. There is a deeper lie that you have bought into in that moment that leads you to those things. And by the way, that doesn't excuse you from the sin. That doesn't get you off the hook because you were tricked into it, because you were deceived into it. This is another interesting thing about the Bible is even though uh, it talks about belief a lot, it doesn't define belief in a lot of the same ways we do. Or at least uh, let me let me kind of explain that we tend to think that belief is almost an involuntary thing like I can't believe unless I'm given enough reasons to believe and once you give me enough reasons I can't help but believe right you show me enough evidence I'll believe if not the Bible talks like it's more complicated than that like you are responsible for what you choose to believe or not to believe like there is, there is a level of culpability in your belief or unbelief. It's not just, oh, you didn't have enough evidence. No, no, you had some choice, some say in the matter. And in all these issues, we've chosen to believe something different. Why did you cheat on that test? And, and the answer is because you have bought into some kind of lie that says, I have to pass this class. Or, or let me say the, the, the greater, bigger lie. Whether you would ever say this out loud or not, when you do those things, what it means is this. Um, success is more valuable than integrity. Success is more valuable, is more important than honesty. That's, that's the lie you bought into in that moment and you're living by that lie. Why is it that you need so much stuff? Why is it that greed seems to take over your life? And the, the answer, the lie that you bought is that I need this stuff to give me joy. that that having these certain things, especially if it allows me to either keep up with those around me or even surpass, is what can give me a a certain level of significance. It gives me value. It gives me worth. And there is a lie that you are the deceitfulness of sin that you have bought into and that you are living into. The reason you're sleeping with your boyfriend is because, well, I mean, if I don't, then I might lose him, and I cannot live without him. Or or this is kind of the the major, I believe, the the lie that much of um, the Western world today has bought into is that like sex is my right and a critical part of my identity. That's why everybody gets so up in arms when you start talking about um, restricting who you can and can't have sex with. When we tell people that you can't have sex with that person before you're married or with someone of the same gender, people go crazy about that because there's some sort of belief That, like, my sexual activity is a critical part of my identity. So if you try and stop that, then what you're doing is you're actually shutting down my inherent worth as a human being or my identity, which is ludicrous. Because it means that Jesus had no identity. And it means that my children have no identity. And it means that like and, and we all recognize that there's no truth to that, but it's a lie that has been fed to us so much and we buy in to the deceitfulness of sin. And here is the ultimate. That's that's not even the deepest roots of all the lies that we believe that bring us to sin. The deepest, the ultimate lie of sin is this: that this is better than God. That's what all of it comes down to. Is that this is better that, that, that what I get from cheating on this test is more valuable than what I get for obeying God. Okay, That the pleasure I experience from whatever it may be, porn or, or lying or gossip, whatever those things may be, what, I've, what I'm believing is that that promises more to me than God does. And, and, and it's worth it to, to dig into those things. This is the lie that most of us believe. Sin is a failure to believe the truth or more likely to trust Okay, sin is a failure to trust. That's what all of this kind of comes down to, and and that that ought to make sense, right? Because when we say that you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, what do we mean by that? We mean more than like mental assent, right? It's not like believe, like check the box that you agree with all these facts. He did exist. And he, and, and he is the Son of God, and he did raise from the dead. Like, those are all good things to believe. But when we say believe in Jesus, we mean more than those things. I mean, there's a certain level of trust that has to go into it, which means certain level of, of um, active responses, okay? And and I believe obedience and... and um, if you want to say striving to enter that rest okay there are actions that are going to take place as a result of that rest this is maybe my favorite verse in hebrews it comes in eleven six, 6 and i don't want to jump the gun too much i know we're a ways out from that but i love this listen to this hebrews eleven six says this and without faith it is impossible to please god because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists that's mental assent and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him that's trust yeah. anyone who wants to please god with faith this is what faith is not just believing that He exists of course is that but it's also believing that he rewards him i.e it's believing that this is worth it that those people that the writer is is speaking to in this book those people who are losing family and jobs and livelihood because of their decision to follow jesus and not go back to the old covenant the way they're doing those things, He says, if you want to follow after him, you need to know this, that it's worth everything you're losing that the reward you get from God is greater than those things, that, that, that it's worth keeping your integrity to obey Him, it's worth keeping your morality or your holiness to obey. That's worth what you lose on the other side because of the rewards of Him. I trust this, I believe this, and I'm willing to put my life out, to put my money where my mouth is because I believe that His rewards are better. And here's the question, the big question, is what are those rewards or what is that reward that is so much greater and we have to wait until we get to Hebrews 11 to talk about that one Um, but this is the key question is what do we trust and as I said we'll talk about this reward in 11 here's the other big question what in the world does Drew you've been talking for like 15 minutes what in the world does this have to do with 4 verse 12 the word of God is living and active here is the biggest problem with the deceitfulness of sin is that when you buy into the lie and when you place your trust in this, this idea that that is better than God himself, the more you do that, and the longer you do that and the more often you participate in that what the writer of Hebrews says is you begin to build up a hardness of heart that, that that mounts up on itself and becomes greater and stronger and more impenetrable than ever before and you will get to a place where the lies that you have bought into are so real to you that you can't you can't even see that there is anything else than that lie That is truth to you, and it's almost impossible to see that. And even if you could see that, it's virtually impossible for you to care or to repent. And this is exactly the kind of state that the writer of Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews is referring to. And he says, you need to be afraid when you get to that point. And left to ourselves, we have no hope in that that when we give ourselves to sin and the deceitfulness of it, we have no hope beyond beyond that. That's it for us. Unless there is something that is strong enough and sharp enough to penetrate through that hardness of heart, to break into all of those things. And this is where Hebrews 4.12 comes in. That even in our hardness of heart, even in our greatest sin, even in those moments that the Word of God is living and active, and that is able to penetrate all the way through, even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it can access those things. That is where all of this stuff comes from. That's why 12 follows on 11, because what he's saying is, let's make every effort, strive to enter that rest. And then he says, and know this, this is why you can do it, because the Word of God is living and active. It is It is there with you, God, has given that to us as a way to do it. So what does he mean when he says living? When he says living, what he means is that the words of God, unlike so many others, they don't actually, their relevance, their purpose, their life doesn't die with the author. That, That words written a thousand years before the writer was writing these words, words written by David, he says, still have relevance, are still speaking truth straight to your heart today is what he's saying to them. And 3,000 years later, I would argue it ought to be doing and can be doing and is doing the same thing at this moment. That when he says, make every effort to enter, let's not be those who harden their hearts. Let's enter the rest of God. That that is designed that it can move into us. It's living and it's life giving even today and when he says it's active he simply means this that it is effective and we see this idea throughout scripture that god's word does what it is intended to do it does those things and, and it reaches into our hearts the hardness of heart and it breaks those things open i might be able to no no i'm actually pretty good at hiding my sin from friends and from family co-workers and truthfully I think because I've bought into enough lies in my past that I can get pretty good at hiding lies from myself but there is one person from whom I cannot hold anything back that I am as the writer says completely exposed before and he sees and he knows every deep motive at the root of my heart and that is God and because of that The writer says that his word is always able to go to the core of those things and reveal those things to me when I'm willing to engage in it. When I'm willing to actively engage in God's word, it is able to show me where my heart is and and, and what needs to change me. It's able to show where sin is, and that's what makes it so vital. Hear this. The amount of time you spend allowing God's word to speak to you and rest on you and applied to your life, the amount of time you spend letting those things happen is directly proportional to how soft your heart will be. The amount of time you're willing to spend is directly proportional to how how able you are to see your own sin and how able you are to repent when those things are brought up before you. And the less and less time you spend in the presence of God's word, and I believe when he says God's word that he does mean more than just scriptures. And he means words spoken by the Spirit. But I do believe this, that primarily we're talking about the scriptures. That the less time we spend around those, when all we do is spend our time snacking on it on Sundays,